Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss early neuromuscular blockade in ARDS. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Mark Moss and Dr. Derek Angus with us. Um, I'll allow Dr. Mark Moss to introduce himself, and then uh, Dr. Angus. Mark? Hi, I'm Mark Moss. I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor at the University of Colorado, and I was uh, the co-chair of the protocol committee uh, with Derek for the Rose study. Hi, I'm Derek Angus. I'm an intensivist at the University of Pittsburgh, and as Mark said, I co-chaired this study with him on behalf of uh, the PETL NHLBI clinic. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the ATS Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. Today we'll be discussing uh, your article published in the NEJM, the May 2019 issue, entitled Early Neuromuscular Blockade uh, in the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So, Mark, we'll go ahead and uh, maybe you could uh, explain to us why your group performed this trial. Sure. The the main reason we performed the trial is that there was a theory that um, there was improvement in patient care with the use of neuromuscular blockade in patients with ARDS. And this was based on a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010 called the Acuracis trial that was a, a large multicenter double-blinded trial that was performed in, in France and Europe. And that study reported that the early administration of a 48-hour infusion of neuromuscular blockade in patients with moderate to, to severe ARDS resulted in a lower mortality um, when compared to a strategy of deep sedation without routine neuromuscular blockade. And what was interesting about the study is that despite these encouraging results, the use of early and continuous infusions of neuromuscular blockade were not widely adopted around the world and were only weakly recommended in guidelines. Part of this was the study was performed a decade ago, and ICU practices has also changed since that time. Um, some of the concerns with the original study is that neuromuscular blockade and deep sedation was compared to deep sedation alone, as I said, and current practices change where we target more lighter sedation um, in patients that are critically ill. Um, in addition, the study did not have as comprehensive evaluations of neuromuscular dysfunction and long-term outcomes, um, and there were other nuances in the care of critically ill patients with moderate to severe ARDS that had changed over the decade. So based on the encouraging results of the previous study, the lack of um, or adoption of neuromuscular blockade around the world and that practices had changed, we thought that it made sense to um, not just repeat the study, but, but uh, perform a study that answered additional questions to the original Acuracis trial. Great. And then for the benefit of uh, our younger ATS uh, community members, what would be the proposed mechanism of benefit if neuromuscular blockade um, uh, were to be effective? Yeah, it's a very good question. The the theory behind it that was based on some preliminary studies is that 
one of the big issues in patients with ARDS and on mechanical ventilation is that if the ventilator is not set up properly, the ventilator can cause harm to the lung. And as we know, that's something called ventilator-induced lung injury. So getting high tidal volumes um, and other um, high pressures and volumes in the lung can injure the lung. Um, and sometimes that can be due to tidal volumes, as I talked about, or different forms of dyssynchrony with the, with the ventilator when someone's not interfacing well with the ventilator. So by giving someone a neuromuscular blocking agent, they interface better with the ventilator and hypothetically decrease the amount of ventilator-induced lung injury that occurs. Great. So how did you perform your trial, and how does it differ from prior trials on the same topic? Yeah, so as Derek alluded to, the trial was performed by the NHLBI Pedal Network, or the Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury Network. This was comprised of 12 clinical centers and one coordinating center, um, all in the, in the United States, that were put together in a competitive process to perform multi-center clinical trials um, in the realm of ARDS and critical care. So Derek uh, at Pittsburgh and myself in Colorado were part of the pedal network. Um, so the pedal network voted on and approved that to, to do the ROSE study. Um, so the study was performed um, at the 12 clinical centers that consisted of 48 hospitals around the country. Um, and the study was uh, uh, performed um, uh, over a course of about two and a half years, um, and it was done by the, the investigators as part of the pedal network. And, and how does it differ than the previous studies? As I alluded to before, um, there were some similarities. The similarities were uh, we, again, chose a 48-hour infusion um, of early uh, neuromuscular blockade, um, and we used the same dosing. Um, but there were important differences. We used a, a higher PEEP protocol, um, number one, um, as it's been shown that there are potential benefits with using higher PEEP or trying to achieve higher PEEP. We targeted lighter sedation in the control group. We also performed a larger study, so it was powered for um, uh, uh, even a, uh, to detect an even smaller effect. Some of the other differences were some of the inclusion criteria. We allowed the utilization of an, of an S to F ratio um, as blood gases are being less commonly used uh, in the intensive care unit. Um, and we also performed more comprehensive evaluations of neuromuscular dysfunction while patients were in the hospital and longer-term um, um, outcomes up to one year afterwards. One very, I think, a minor thing is that we did not blind the study. The original study was blinded. We kind of thought, since our primary outcome was mortality, and that you can kind of walk into a patient's room and tell if they're under uh, neuromuscular blockade or not, uh, we did not feel it was uh, worthwhile to perform blinding. So those, those were the ways the studies were different. We higher PEEP, lighter sedation, larger study, um, we allowed S to F criteria, um, and we had longer outcome, uh, longer longer term assessments, and more in depth neuromuscular assessments while they were in the hospital. Thank you for that overview. So, what were your primary findings? Well, I think 
I think we did a very good study. 97% of the patients in the intervention group received an infusion of neuromuscularcade um, on average for 47.8 hours. So most of the, almost all of the patients received the, the intervention, so there was good separation between the groups. The control group was allowed to receive some neuromuscularcade um, based on an algorithm and, and kind of recommendations. 17% of the people in the control group did receive neuromuscularcade, but at a dose that was just, um, on average, two boluses. Um, and what the study found was after the second interim analysis, the decision was to stop the study for futility. So our primary outcome was 90-day um, 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 mortality rates. And in the intervention group, the mortality was 42.5%, and in the control group was 42.8%. So there was, there was no difference in our primary outcome, and there were no difference in any pre-specified subgroup analyses. There were also a hint at some um, deleterious effects of neuromuscular blockade uh, in the control group, or I'm sorry, in the intervention group, their cardiovascular SOFA scores were higher than the control group at day one and day two. And that's probably due to the, the requirement for deep sedation, um, which can lead to hypotension in the patients who receive neuromuscular blockade. And there were also more serious um, cardiovascular adverse events reported in the intervention group compared to the, in, to the control group. So there was no difference in our primary outcome and, and a hint at some uh, deleterious effects uh, with the use of neuromuscular blockade in, 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 in terms of uh, cardiovascular SOFA scores and cardiovascular events. So a very well-conducted uh, trial. So I'm going to turn our attention to how would you interpret these findings and what are the limitations? And I'll start first with Mark, and then afterwards uh, we'll get Derek's input. Mark? Um, well, I think what's happened is that practice has changed a lot over the last 10 years, and maybe what was necessary um, in 2008 and 2009 is not necessary anymore. Um, and I think the way uh, we would interpret the study is that I think it pretty clearly shows that for patients with moderate to severe ARDS, um, it's not necessary to automatically start patients on a neuromuscular blocking agent for a continuous infusion for 48 hours. Um, and I think that even though we said it had not been adopted, um, I, I think it will help change practice that way because people will know that that's not something that they need to do. Um, I, I, I don't think it, it means that you never use neuromuscular blockade, but I think it means that you don't have to start patients on a uh, continuous infusion. The reason I say that is in the control group, some people did very small percentage, 17%, did receive neuromuscular blockade. Um, but, but I think what it shows is you don't need to use a continuous infusion. Okay, and Derek, uh, well, what was your interpretation? And maybe we'll go through your interpretation before we get to the limitations. So I completely d disagree with Mark and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, go ahead uh, and share yeah, with us. Mark said, um, I agree with everything that Mark said. I, I think a couple of things. Um, I'm just going back to the differences between this trial and the last trial. Um, Mark is pointing out that one of the huge differences is time, that this was done sort of 10 years later and there could have been a big difference in practice. Um, the prior investigators, though, did make the decision to blind the study. 
And because they were blinding the study, that's why they had to do really heavy sedation in the uh, control arm. Now, at that time, really heavy sedation was also uh, adequately consistent with usual practice. Uh, when we were designing our study, we really felt like you couldn't do that, that it, that it just wouldn't represent usual practice. Um, and so part of the reason why we didn't blind, not only because we didn't think it was possible to blind, in other words, you would know someone wasn't on neuromuscular blockade, but if we'd adopted the blinding procedures that uh, the French investigators had adopted, we would have basically been uh, snowing patients, keeping them much more sedated than is usual practice, and then not, neither arm would have represented contemporary practice. So I definitely think that I agree with Mark that one of the big interpreta likely interpretations for the findings could be that we compared an arm with sedation plus neuromuscular blockade to an arm that was really trying to do light sedation. And so, for example, that might be why there were more hints of cardiovascular side effects and so on. Uh, there are a couple of other things that could be in play, though. I think... Um, one thing Mark hadn't mentioned, or maybe he had, but I missed, we really tried to get people early. It's actually in the name of PETL, prevention and early treatment. And unlike the past ARDSNET, um, our investigators were all uh, couples of investigators, coupling intensivists uh, with emergency medicine physicians and trying to introduce procedures at sites that really picked up patients as they hit the door. And so consequently, we were getting patients just within hours of meeting the first set of criteria for severe or moderate or severe ARDS. And um, so although the overall mortality rate was similar, and although we certainly think that these patients absolutely had moderate to severe ARDS, uh, one has to wonder about the various censoring effects that take place if you're, getting, if you're picking up patients very early. You might be picking up patients who are so terribly ill that had you done a study where you enrolled patients earlier, there was these, some of these patients might already be approaching withdrawal of support and wouldn't, have been, wouldn't even have been eligible for the French study. And then similarly, uh, we might have picked up some patients who were just going to turn around and get better very quickly. So although the the letter of the entry criteria look very similar. Simply moving the timing up front could have played a role. Now, now we, we, we tested that, and we, we couldn't see that that was playing an effect, but we can't rule out that that couldn't also have contributed. And then the other thing is ARDS is a very heterogeneous condition. And uh, just because these patients have similarly bad PF ratios, doesn't mean to say that the underlying disease process is homogenous between the two trials. Uh, for example, maybe the French trial was recruiting a lot of patients with terrible H1N1, and maybe our pneumonia patients included less severe influenza and pneumonia. Maybe that's a slightly different disease process uh, that responds differently to um, uh, it makes patients more prone to patient ventilator asynchrony and so on. Uh, your response, Mark? Um, 
I, I agree with Derek, and I'm glad he brought that up about the timing. That was something that um, was deliberate in, in keeping with what the pedal network was trying to do. And again, the reason we did that is anytime you can try to get an effective therapy to be started sooner in the course, um, it should be even more beneficial. So I think the hypothesis and the reasoning for enrolling people very early was very sound. Um, it does bring up the limitations that Derek talked about, um, and every study design has pluses and minuses to it. Um, but but it, it required a lot of work on the part of the investigators and the coordinators to find these people early. And I think it also does show that networks like this, um, multi-center NIH-sponsored networks, can enroll people very early in the course of disease. Um, and I think that could set some really good precedent for other studies in the future. Yeah, I completely... Uh, no, go ahead, uh, I completely agree. Please don't misconstrue my yeah. comment as suggesting that it wasn't a good idea to get people early. Yeah. You know, ra rarely in medicine... Uh, if something is going to be beneficial, would you deliberately delay starting it? So, um, as Mark suggested, these were simply design choices, but I think if we were designing the trial again tomorrow, we would still want to get people as early. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Derek. Okay. And in terms of other limitations that you identified uh, in the study, Mark, what would those be? Um I mean, I think it's it, a lot of it gets back to what Derek talked about in terms of um, the heterogeneity of uh, patients with, with ARDS. It's a syndrome. It's not a disease. Um, and, and I think um, people are always looking for, yeah, maybe there's this subgroup of patients that, that you should have uh, uh, targeted a little bit more. Um, so I, I think that was that, that's part of it. The other thing that we wrestled with a lot is that there were patients that came into or, or that came into the um, intensive care unit um, before they were approached for the study and they were already receiving neuromuscular blockade. And there's always a concern that um, the, the patients that really ben would benefit from neuromuscular blockade were already receiving it and therefore were excluded from the study. Um, was there something that physicians could identify in those patients so that we were, quote, studying the wrong group of patients that way? Um, and as Derek alluded to, we, we did some analyses that I thought were pretty, pretty neat in the sense that um, what we did is we looked at the pay, or the different centers that had higher exclusion rates for already being on neuromuscular blockade and divided them into tertiles of uh, there were certain hospitals that used a lot of neuromuscular blockade, so that was a high exclusion criteria, and there were others that had not that much um, exclusion for that reason. And in those subgroups, there really was not even a, a hint that there was a benefit in the hospitals where there were not people being excluded for that reason. Um, so that that was that was I think probably to me the big one of the biggest limitations we were concerned about that this generalizability issue. Um, but but it turned out at least in these uh, secondary analyses uh, that that it did not appear to be an effect. In terms of the blinding, that was something as as we talked about was was done deliberately. Um, 
there were, in terms of neuromuscular assessments, therefore, in the, in the hospital, the physiotherapists and other healthcare professionals were aware of the treatment um, assignment, but I don't think that probably had a, a big impact that way. So those were, those were some of the, the limitations of the study in terms of the, the generalizability and really did we enroll the right people or did we enroll the wrong people and that's why we did not see a treatment effect. That's a concern and a limitation, but um, I, I don't think that's the reason why we got the results that we did. Got you. Um, I had a few uh, questions about um, some of the enrollment criteria, and it was just intriguing because uh, some of the patients that would have been enrolled in your study, some physicians wouldn't have lent to uh, starting them on neuromuscular blockade. For example, if a PF ratio was between 140 and 150, they would have been entered in your trial. But if you convert those numbers to an FR2 and a PO2, that patient could be an FR2 of 50% and have a PO2 of 75 and most patients, or some clinicians would argue, I wouldn't start that patient on a neuromuscular blockade. I was curious to see um, what your response to that would be, uh, should you maybe have targeted a group of patients with the PF ratio of less than 100, rather than including those of 100 to 150? Um, Derek, do you want to take that? I'm happy to, but we'll um, yeah, I mean, just split this up. So I think if, uh, you know, if clinicians just didn't think the patient was sick enough, the patient never made their way to the trial. Uh, we were we were taking at face value the criteria that had been used previously. As you can see from who we did enroll, uh, although it had to be less than 150, we enrolled the, the vast majority of patients were um, very sick with much lower PF ratios and with a pretty high mortality rate. Um, we weren't twisting anyone's arms. Um, and as Mark alluded to, there were some centers where there were physician refusals to enroll. Um, the good news for us was that that tended to vary by center. And so a, a huge chunk of the trial was conducted at sites where um, physicians had absolute equipoise and no problem with enrollment. And so at least at those sites, uh, the patients we were finding and hearing about and trying to enroll, uh, the bedside clinical team felt very comfortable about them being that way. Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, to, this goes back to this notion of spirit versus letter. There's probably no trial in sepsis or ARDS where you couldn't take the entry criteria and imagine a particular case that you could say, well, that would be weird, wouldn't it? Why would you enroll that person? Part of the reason why, for example, some of these trials have coordinating centers where you call the coordinator, uh, coordinating center and sort of walk through the case. Uh, I think um, there are plenty of patients with PF ratios just under 150 that would look plenty sick to have been good candidates. You can, the team would have legitimately felt very concerned about uh, that patient's outcome and would have felt that they mimicked the patients that had been enrolled previously and would have thought it was fine to enroll. But that doesn't belie the point that you make, that there could be someone with a PF ratio of 148 who's sitting there actually looking quite pretty and that the clinical team thinks, ah, it's a one-off bad PF ratio, but they really otherwise look not bad and we think they will be improving. Chances are those patients never made their way to us. 
The thing I'd Good. add to that, to what Dark said, is um, is two things. I think you make a, a really important point. I think um, what we've learned by previous ARDS studies is that you really do want to, in general, quote enroll the sicker people because the the people that had P to F ratios of two sixty nine or two eighty, most of those people got better pretty quickly, and their their mortality wasn't wasn't that high. And if you look at the recent positive trials, they have targeted the sicker, moderate to severe ARDS. So I think conceptually what you're saying is important. Um, it becomes a little bit of a practical issue if you're trying to enroll people just with P to F ratios less than 100. It's going to be harder to get a, a higher sample size to be able to detect the difference in that patient population. Though if the benefit's great, you might be able to see that. So we did wrestle with that. However, if you looked at the subgroups um, of P to F's less than 120, which was the cutoff um, that was identified in the Curis' study where the benefit was less than 120, we did not see that in our study. The other thing on the other side of people weren't sick enough, we, we did think about that ahead of time and there was an out in a sense. If someone did get enrolled in the study and had improved, they didn't have to stay on neuromuscular blockade for the whole 48 hours. If they'd gone down to 40%, I think it's A to PEEP if I remember correctly, for 12 hours, they, they could be taken off of the protocol. And that did happen in um, somewhere around 15% uh, of the patients that were enrolled into the intervention trial is that they did improve and the neuromuscular blockade was stopped um, early in those patients. It's the only other thing Thanks. I would say about this trial, but also about all the pedal trials and even the ARDSNET trials before them. Of course, no clinical trial is perfect, but... Um, the process for trial design in this network uh, involves a set of investigators crafting the initial protocol, but then a very explicit and deliberative process where all the criteria and elements of the study design are laid out at in-person meetings, where the room is filled with a robust set of animated and practical clinicians, both physicians uh, and uh, uh, often uh, research uh, coordinators with nursing backgrounds. And you know, we had 48 hospitals represented, and everyone weighed in on the extent to which they thought they would operationalize these criteria. So I, I totally think it's a great point you raise. I do think that our entry criteria were not picked sort of out of the blue and, were, and weren't at odds with uh, what actually fits in with clinical practice at a wide swath of hospitals. Great. I appreciate the clarification, um, especially the, the background uh, thought process. Um, one other question, um, and, and I think you'll alluded to it in the paper itself, um, was the fact that uh, neuromuscular blockades weren't titrated to peripheral nerve stimulation, but uh, were basically a continuous infusion. Um, and some clinicians may raise questions about whether or not um, uh, the neuromuscular blockade was uh, truly effective or not. And another question was um, about whether or not you were able to measure ventilated dyssynchrony before and after initiation of neuromuscular blockade. I was hoping you could uh, uh, comment on that. Uh, maybe Mark first and uh, then Derek? Sure. Well, in terms of the 
the titration, we did spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, and if you think about it, if you're trying to design a study at 48 hospitals and you're having people titrate dosing to peripheral nerve stimulation, it gets complex. Um, so we chose a simpler approach that also was what they did in the previous study that showed a potential benefit in that patient population. And based on the dosing, um, the vast majority of patients um, were truly and effectively uh, receiving neuromuscular blockade. Um, that was shown in the previous study um, and, and, and makes sense from a pharmacodynamic and kinetic standpoint. In terms of measuring uh, dyssynchrony, very good question. We talked about that also, and the way it got done is that there was a sub-study um, that was proposed um, and accepted. So at certain sites, they did measure dyssynchrony um, at, 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 in a subset of the patients. Um, we thought about uh, or we wanted to have that data in this study, um, but just due to timing, um, that data wasn't ready to be included in the primary manuscript, so we made the decision we didn't want to delay releasing the results to the general public for that information, um, but I would assume that that data will be um, available in a secondary publication in the, in the somewhat near future. So we did it as a, a subset of, the, of, of the, all the patients. I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, we, I, I think we would definitely acknowledge that it's a limitation that we don't have robust measures of ventilator dyssynchrony on every patient. Uh, there's no question that that would have been our desire. We simply didn't know how to do it. Uh, we had extensive conversations around what would be a legitimate and practical way to measure it. The reason it became a sub-study is because the only way we felt we could measure ventilator dyssynchrony in a credible fashion actually involved quite a lot of work and was somewhat novel and a bit experimental and it, it was just felt totally to be totally impractical um, if it had been rolled out for all 1400 the original sample size of over 1400 patients so. thank you both um, so Derek uh, how do you think um, this trial advances our understanding of neuromuscular blockade in ARDS and how do you think it's going to influence our clinical practice Right, so um, Mark said at the top of this discussion that it hadn't really been adopted into practice, and it's definitely the case that, that um, not everyone was getting neuromuscular blockade infusions despite the lovely original trial from France. Uh, having said that, um, uh, sometimes it is happening in practice, and it remained an open question, and it was even an open question in guideline statements, etc. So the first thing we've done, I think, is uh, just bring more data to the table on should you or should you not consider um, uh, the systematic deployment of an early, uh, uh, early on of a 48-hour infusion of neuromuscular blockade. And um, we would say, at least in contemporary U.S. practice, uh, uh, where we think our study was quite representative, that we we do not support that. Um, whether that's considered to be true worldwide, I guess, will 
play out later. Um, and we don't think that the prior study is inferior just because it's older. Um, so it'll still be interesting to see the studies combined, though, as Mark alluded to, this was a much bigger study. Um, so we don't think, I think our position is we would not recommend starting people on infusions. What's left unsaid is, does that mean you could never give neuromuscular blockade? And we would emphasize that our control arm included the selective judicious use of what was predominantly just one or two boluses here and there for someone who looks like they are dying in front of you of overwhelming hypoxia. And uh, we were never stopping that from happening. And that was also not precluded in the original French trial. In fact, 22% of the control arm in the original French trial got some neuromuscular blockade. So we should, we would, it's important to emphasize we are not suggesting uh, to never give neuromuscular blockade. We're suggesting the systematic use of a 40-hour infusion we would not recommend. And we really think there's a big difference between committing to two days of infusion versus giving a bolus that lasts for 30 to 45 minutes. Got you. Mark, uh, your response to that? I I couldn't have said it any better. I, I completely agree. And, and Derek and I have talked about this a lot, of how to interpret the study, um, especially there there were letters that um, to to the to the original paper that we recently um, had to figure out how to address. And this was one of the issues that came up, and I, I completely agree with the way Derek said it. Perfect. Um, so there are, as Derek said earlier, no perfect uh, studies and no perfect study designs. So Mark, with the benefit of hindsight and being through this process, how would you have designed the study differently or how would you advise clinicians in the future um, about certain modifications that you would emphasize in study design regarding this topic? Yeah, well, I think any any study always raises more questions than maybe it answers. So to kind of focus on future studies and things like that. I I think there are, there are several um, still unanswered questions. There's always this issue of, uh, as Derek talked about, heterogeneity treatment effect, and uh, not all, not every ARDS patient's the same. Some have H1N1, others have pneumonia, et cetera, and some are pulmonary, non-pulmonary, however you want to slice it up that way. Um, and it's possible um, that there are subgroups that could, could benefit from this intervention. What I think is even more or more interesting is that the, the concept that, that that you had us explain is that neuromuscular blockade prevents ventilator dyssynchrony, decreases ventilator-induced lung injury. If you think about it, giving someone a neuromuscular blocking agent a pretty aggressive or extreme way to achieve that goal. You're making that they can't make any movements at all. Um, and if the theory is correct, which I think it's the whole concept of ventilator-induced lung injury is really, really important and probably one of the, the major things we've learned and understood over the last 20, 30 years of, of, of taking care of critically ill patients that you've got to make sure that the ventilator doesn't further harm the patient. So therefore, there are potentially other interventions that are not as aggressive or extreme as neuromuscular arcade that could diminish and um, decrease the amount of ventilator-induced lung injury. Maybe it's how you set up the ventilator. Maybe it's other 
um, uh, pharmacological interventions, how we titrate sedation in certain ways um, that I think could be uh, future avenues for research. Um, because again, I think neuromuscular cave is sort of a sledgehammer to prevent um, ventilator-induced lung injury, and there may be more modest ways that have less uh, deleterious effects um, than starting someone under a neuromuscular blocking agent. That, I think, will will be interesting um, in, in future areas of research. Yeah, great, great insights. Uh, Derek, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, so, um, so what Mark very nicely pointed out there is that um, uh, the treatment effects could vary by different subgroups. And the right treatments might actually be uh, uh, a combination of different approaches or different doses of single approaches, all of which means multiple different arms. And so if we think that the best way to tease out the effects or to be able to look across subgroups and to compare multiple different uh, experimental arms to each other, then what we've basically just done is said we need much larger sample sizes. And yet this trial, even to pull this trial off, was a lot of work and quite expensive. So I'm not sure I have a magic bullet for this, but somehow we have to find a way to make it possible to do uh, larger studies, to lower the cost of data collection, to somehow and make the barriers to entry into these trials lower because realistically the biggest improvement in study design probably gets from being, you know, a thousand patient study to a ten thousand patient study with adequate representation of the different subgroups and with the ability to explore across different uh combinations of that's um I I fully get that's quite aspirational. <laughs> Although I would point out that those are the sample sizes uh, that are enrolled in certain other fields in heart failure, cardiology, and so on. Realistically, for such a heterogeneous disease with such a panoply of potential interventions, uh, the biggest threat to our study design is probably sample size. Gotcha. Well, we'll definitely uh, hope, hopefully have those big uh, uh, studies in the future. Um, well, I, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to speak with us on the ATS Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I've really enjoyed the discussion between the two of you and for giving giving us really great um, uh, behind-the-scenes look as to how this study was designed and the really great insights that you provided us. Uh, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Derek. Thank you. You're most welcome. A big thank you to Drs. Moss and Angus, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.